to your Bible, a custom design to your Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resident Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And we are continuing into the book of Numbers as well as the book of Acts. We are not going to finish either of those today, but uh, we will continue through um, some of these stories. And uh, we kind of pick up uh, right um Right where we left off last week, and and we're we're dealing with uh, them being ready to go on their journey. Uh, the 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 rest of this book will be involved the journey to the promised land, but uh, it sort of um, kind of feels like to me they're packing their bags, they're making sure everything's accounted for. They're 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 as uh, Sarah joked about a second ago. It's like a full house, and they're counting the heads, and making sure everybody's accounted for. Hopefully, they don't leave anybody behind. And um, and yeah, they're they're sort of getting ready for this road trip. Uh, to the promised land. And right. So. so making sure everybody has a specific task and really identifying and making clear. There are things we can pull out of what we're going to read today. I don't want to say there aren't, but it's also worth noting and remembering that we're reading historical narrative literature and there are times that certain pieces of this were really, really relevant for Israel um, that may not be as much of a deep dive for us as other things. Yeah. And even the Christological side of that, of like, how does this connect to Jesus? Um Sometimes there's very specific stories that connect to Jesus, and sometimes there's larger ideas that connect mm-hmm. to Jesus. And um, the, the the tabernacling, traveling in the desert, and some of the lessons that they'll learn and stuff like that, those are sometimes the larger ideas as opposed to like, how does the Kohathites carrying this one specific thing connect to Jesus? And sometimes those are a little more tricky. Now, I don't expect uh, most of us to probably go, here's very clearly where the Jesus piece of that is versus the whole idea of the Israelites packing and everybody having a role and traveling through the desert together and traveling with God in the desert and all those sort of ideas as well. Yeah. So, so we start with Aaron's son and yeah, the Levites getting yeah. some tasks. Yep. And it seems like, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember whether it was clarified previous to this, but that definitely through Aaron's offspring and through his sons, they'll be carried a unique priestly line in the high priest. Um, and, and not only that, there's this whole, um, transfer it feels like of the firstborn idea mm-hmm. um that uh in exodus we saw uh that all the firstborn of israel because they were spared in egypt would still be the lords and and in some ways that would probably have the expectation culturally that all of them all the firstborns of every family would serve as a priest and um and and god sort of transfers it to this one tribe saying no no you levites you will be the sort of intermediaries you will be the stand between you will be the protector of the, the, the presence, the dwelling place of God and the protector for the people too. Um, and they had that role. Yeah. And I think that we can see here some of our foundational beliefs in the role of spiritual leadership and spiritual authority, uh, that they are the protectors of the guards of what's going on. And sometimes those mediators and intermediaries. So that's why we have elders in the church. That's why we have heads of households and homes and things like that. Yeah, and, and we see some of that even in Acts as we go today mm-hmm. um, of how the apostles sort of transfer or des- delegate power and stuff like that. Yeah. And so uh, the, 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 the Levites take a census of who they got, um, and uh, they have uh, less uh, than – the amount of firstborns that exist in the tribe. And so 273. Yeah, very specific. Fewer to be exact. And so they set up a sort of a fill the gap payment plan uh, for all the firstborns, uh, and it's not cheap. And uh, and so there's sort of a, a price. So so it's it's just made sure everything's level. Like, hey, we don't have the perfect number, so at least there'll be a price to, to make sure that this transfer of ownership of of these 
tasks and responsibilities is is clear. The redemption price that was paid. Yeah, and the idea of everybody being fully represented before God. Yep. And so uh, some of the tribes of Levi were all given jobs. The Kohathites carry all the stuff inside the tabernacle. The Gershonites carry all the fabrics. And the Merarites carry all the structural things, the pillars, the poles, all all those sort of things. Yeah, we were kind of laughing at the Kohathites because their job was to carry the stuff that if they touched it, they would die. Uh, So that was kind of an intense (laughs) job. So I know that they were kind of doing the manual labor of carrying things back and forth. But uh, that's probably also a pretty scary job to have. Right. And they, they couldn't load it in the wagon. Wagons. Uh, every, all the other people can load all their stuff into wagons, but they were supposed to carry them on these poles. That so uh, they definitely had, <laughs> I think, the worst job. Yeah, um, and we'll see this. Remember this because we'll see it come up later when we read in um, about King David and Uzzah, who when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Yep, and so they take a census of the whole Levites at this point. Uh, everything's accounted for, ready for the road trip. Um, let's just make sure we uh, go to the bathroom, wash our hands, do all that. So they get all these sort of like last second, hey, um, let's make sure that we clear up all the unclean things before we head out. Let's um, make sure that if you've sinned and you regret, you didn't mean to do it, let's make sure that you offer a sacrifice for that. Um, if you did mean to do that, well, Sorry. Um, and uh, so there's sort of all these practices that were in, law, in line with the law, but they're sort of having this last minute like, hey, let's make sure everything's okay and on the up and up before we head out. I wonder if it's kind of like a summer camp experience. You know how like when you're a kid, if you go to a Christian camp, you have this big experience and you're like, God, I'm going to do this different and this different. And I'm going to follow you all these days. And then you go back home and everything's a little bit different. So God is reiterating like the God who I was to you here for the last year on Sinai is the same God. I'm going to be with you when we're walking through the desert and we're moving into the promised land. Don't forget who I am and what I've instructed you. Yeah. Yeah. There's often a, a reminder of his instruction and his holiness in a lot of these stories. And we get this weird story kind of thrown in about this um, uh, jealousy uh, ritual. Yeah, this jealousy ritual. This uh, what happens if a husband suspects his wife is cheating? Um, There's a whole process. He brings her to the priest. He mixes some of the water with the the dirt of the tabernacle. Uh, They put it on the woman's head. And if she's innocent and drinks it, she's fine. And if she's guilty, she can't have kids. And so um, it it seems totally. ancient and a little Mm -hmm. bit arcane for us um, and ritualistic. But, but the good part is probably the the part we don't get in sort of the cultural context is like the assumption from the get go is the woman's innocent um, until proven guilty. And as far as I've seen through the whole rest of scripture, this never actually comes up and there's never actually an uh, implementation of this in such a way that ever curses a woman. So I would assume most of the time when a woman drinks it, She's sort of found innocent in these cases, unless something supernatural actually happens uh, in that moment. And so, yeah. Yeah, and keep in mind, the cultures around them were very authoritarian, and wives and women were oftentimes seen more as ownership rather than a partner in life. And so, let's say in a different culture at this time, a husband suspected his wife of cheating, he could just like kick her out on the street or abuse her or do these things. So, what God has provided here is a means of clearing a woman's innocence and a means of protection and provision for her. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely um, progressive compared to everything around them. Yeah. And then we get this uh, Nazarite vow as well. Um, 
there's uh, this is almost you can think of it as like a little bit of an ancient monk or nun or something. There's sort of these these vows and these set apartness, um, though they weren't permanent like those are. Uh, they were definitely for a set period of time. Uh, you couldn't drink grape juice, couldn't get a haircut, uh, no touching dead bodies, um, and there's provisions if you violate any of those things. And so, um, yeah, and and we get a few people in scripture that are Nazarites, uh, but uh, it's not. It, it's it's interesting because it's it's really not a big deal to the rest of scripture um, other than with the Samson story because he violates all of his Nazarite mm-hmm. vows. Uh, but um, yeah, it is something to, to note, especially when we come to those stories of going, oh, now I remember where that comes from. Yeah, it's almost like a fast of saying, God, I want to set myself apart in these specific ways to draw near to you or show my devotion. Yeah, and we'll see it with uh, Samuel, we'll see it with John, and then possibly with Paul as well. And then uh, there's a priestly blessing. This is one of the most famous sort of blessing prayers in scripture, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. And uh, and yeah, if you've been listening, there's a song, I don't know how recently it came out, and I can't even remember what it's called, but it basically says this exact same thing. So maybe you heard this song going through your mind, or next time you hear the song, you'll be like, oh, that's actually from the Bible. Yeah, I remember from numbers. singing it in choir before I ever believed in Jesus. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, and if you're a Jewish person today, you pray this actually every day. And so, um, it's very structured. It's three words in the first sentence, five words in the second sentence, seven words in the se- in third sentence. And so, uh, the Lord bless and keep, uh, so sort of may it go well with you, um, in all areas, like may he bless you and, and may he protect those things. Yeah. And uh, I like blessing. I mean, think back to where do we hear about blessing? We hear about blessing in Genesis 1 and 2. We hear about blessing in Genesis 12 when God is speaking to Abraham. There's this idea of blessing being associated with the presence of God and his covenant with his people. Yep. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. This should have some hearkening back to Moses' mm-hmm. encounter with his sort of shining face. And um, and, and and the hope is that may he do the same to us. May, may God's presence shine on, on our faces too and, and make yeah. God be gracious, not wipe us out in that process, but but be gracious like he was to Moses. Right. And the Lord turn his face upon toward you and give you peace. So the sort of and this is an interesting refrain as you sort of read through the prophets particularly, the sort of like, hey God, don't turn your face away from us. Don't forget us. To remember us. Remember, look towards us. That that, that idea of like God pay pay <clears throat> or look towards us in such a way that you remember who we are and remember your promises. And and if God's doing that, that there's peace. And when God looks away, that there's chaos. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that sort of shalom, a right relationship with God, right relationship with the world when, when God is shining his face towards you. Yeah, it's just a beautiful blessing, really rich. <clears throat> and so um, as we move into number seven, uh, I, I think, and, and I'm, I'm not alone in this, so it's not, this is Chris Case. Uh, commentary um, but uh, that chapter 7 through 9 uh, are actually a bit of a, a flashback because it feels like as it starts is like as Moses was finishing the tabernacle I'm like we, we already finished the tabernacle and dedicated it so what, what's sort of happening here um, and, and and it reminds it sort of uh, goes back to sacrifice that's made at the start Levites are consecrated again the Passover celebrated again um, it sort of feels like this odd sort of flashback moment and I think that's that's intentional it fills in some of the gaps story wise it, it has all the tribes give their own dedications and stuff like that. And, and so there's definitely uh, 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 
uh, a sort of retelling and filling the gap because this book hasn't covered some of that stuff finishing up. And it's almost like, hey, I just want to retell this before we set off and start talking about the journey um, that, that we finished the tabernacle, we dedicated it, we celebrated Passover. Um, and, and, and yeah. Yeah, I think it's neat how God, we see in chapter seven that God spoke to Moses now from the mercy seat, uh, yep. which is where God dwelled. And yeah. we both uh, wrote in our notes, what did God say? Yeah. <laughs> Just as God spoke to Moses from the mercy seat, what did he say? Yeah, because uh, so, suddenly we hear about the lamp and uh, suddenly a, a random description of stuff inside the tabernacle. And so, um, yeah. And then... The Levites are consecrated. Yep. Uh, and so the picture sort of imagery here is that there's like a sacrifice and around the whole sacrifice is all the Levites. And remember, this is like thousands of people. And then they're all putting their hands on each other at, towards the sacrifice. And then surrounding them are all the rest of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of Israelites who are putting their hands upon each other, uh, all connected to the one sacrifice in the middle, which Gosh, if that's not Jesus-centric, that's I don't know what cool it is. Imagery. And so, um, the the picture of Jesus in the middle, and and all these people being cleansed by their connection ultimately to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. I think that that's enacted there. Cool. And so, let's get to the New Testament. Um, that was the shortest we've ever walked through an Old Testament text. So uh, good. Hopefully, we uh, finish up quick. Uh, and so, um, yeah. So we're in the Book of Acts. We are. Um, uh, the, the apostles are doing their apostle things and and getting in trouble for it, um, mm-hmm. and and so we see Peter and all company here, and and we see him quote Psalm two, and I think it's it's an interesting quote at the time because um, he, he quotes it, but he sort of leaves out the rest of the, the passage. But um, the, what he quotes is about the the rulers kind of shaking their fists at at God in a way that that God it reigns. And there's other rulers that think they reign. Um, and they say things like, let us break their chains. If you read further in Psalm 2, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And 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 the rulers are the people that just let Peter go. And I think Peter's sort of like, look, they think they're in control, but God's the one who's reigning. And if they don't mm-hmm. come around to that fact, and and, and Psalm 2 in, in has that invited, like that, that invitation, blessed are those who all take refuge in him. And I think Peter's like, if they're not coming around to this fact, like we're going to keep preaching. And and if they don't come around, then God's anger will be stirred up against them. And that's just how it's going to be. And so um, I, I think this quote of Psalm 2 is, is actually really, really beautiful and sort of the time that, that Peter gives it. And then he keeps on preaching. Yeah. And I think we can learn a lot from this prayer and the content of the prayer they pray not for the alleviation of persecution, but they pray that they would have boldness and continue to speak in the midst of persecution. And I just want to encourage you and myself to step back and think about what the emphasis of my prayers are. Is it to alleviate suffering and struggle or is it for boldness and that God would continue to accomplish his work in it? And then we really, I mean, they ask God for boldness. They pray to God based on his character of creator and sovereign. And then we see an immediate answer to prayer. If you look at that last verse, the praise, the place place when they had prayed was gathered and shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. Yeah, that whole uh, not praying to alleviate suffering. I mean, we're going to see by the chapter five and the very next chapter where they, they count themselves worthy of yeah. suffering dishonor. And so um, it's such a different mindset I think, that sometimes we operate out of. Right. And it doesn't mean suffering is easy nope. or we should be really excited about it. It's hard. Um, but the very next story is the the church 
being united has, again this is sort of a refrain of, of the end of chapter two that they have all things in common that they are unified that they're one in spirit all, all these beautiful things about sort of the nature of the church um and then we see that they're not perfect about that, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is great. I really do love that as you're reading this, it's like, all right, even the early church had had their their missteps and their mistakes, and um, not everybody was perfect. <laughs> and, uh, and so we see that with these uh, two that sort of lie about um, what they gave. Uh, and uh, there's a little bit of a response where you're like, ah, oh, that seems so extreme so, yeah um and, and on some level it is but at the same time like this is a this is a common refrain uh, if you've been as you've been reading along maybe you've seen it where like all right there was a major shift in the new creation when noah came out of the garden and it seemed extreme that there would be this whole cursing upon his grandkid and then um uh with with Exodus when they leave the promised land and they're out in the desert and this one guy's gathering sticks on a Friday night or Saturday morning and he gets stoned for it. And, uh, at the, at the dedication of the tabernacle, this, this major shift once again, and then Abraham's sons bring this weird fire in and they get killed for it. And so there, there's this common refrain of like these major shifts in the storyline of like God doing a new thing with his people, establishing a new way, establishing a, a new understanding of things. And then some people come in along to mess it up. And God's like, hold on, I I need to make this very clear of what's happening right now. And and God will often have graciousness from that point on, but it seems like a, a common, like, let me drive home the point right now. That this is not this is a new thing, and and I need you to to be aware of my holiness. I need you to be aware that that this is a important shift for you to note that we can't just be willy nilly or lackadaisical about how we do these things. And so um, I don't think we have to love. That that these that God sometimes enacts this way, um, at least personally. Sometimes I don't always love these kind of stories, but they have a specific time and a specific use. I think in the storyline, particularly for the people in those times, to go, oh, that's what's happening right now. Yeah, I mean, and they didn't love it. It says, "In great fear came upon the whole." Church. Yeah, true. <laughs> they were probably like, "Lord, this is, this might not help your witness or help the gospel going forward." Right. And, um. Yeah, and God cares about His fame and His name, and if His followers at these critical moments are messing that up he's like hold on i want to deal with that and it's not to say he condemned them to hell he might have brought them home we don't know it's a total conjecture um to go hey i need to clean this you guys need to come back up here and so um we don't we don't know that that's a total guess but um uh, but they had to be dealt with yeah so and let's be clear too that their sin here was not that they didn't give all of their money it was that they said they gave all their money so they lied and deceived the church not it had less to do with the amount yeah. and more the heart behind it. And so unity was essential. Yep. Unity still is essential in the church. Consider your role too. And what does it look like for you to bring unity in the church? Or what does authenticity look like for you here at the church? This should be the place where we can be open about our struggles or with what we're doing or what we're not doing so that we can continue to grow in our faith and obedience towards the Lord. Yep. And then we get sort of the apostles continuing what they're doing with crazy signs and wonders that accompany it. Um, and we hear about Peter's shadow. Now, I think there's two ways to approach this. The first one, I think, is sort of like a little bit of a cop-out. But, um, uh, and oh, I guess there's three ways. One, his shadow healed, and we're totally fine with that. Um, two is uh, we never hear that his shadow did the healing. We just sort of see uh, people think that that his shadow will heal, and they start lining up thinking that's going to happen. Maybe there's some superstition tied into that. Uh, the third option, I think, is the most interesting to me. 
Isaiah 32. Um, let me let me just go ahead and read that text because I think it matters uh, for us to understand that. Um, Isaiah 32 uh, says this. It says, uh, see, a king will reign in righteousness. So this is a prophetic text. And it's talking about Jesus coming and reigning in righteousness. And the rulers, so those underneath the king, um, will, will rule in justice. So there'll be some understanding of those, the king's subjects, the king's appointed rulers will, will rule with justice. And each one, so each of those rulers, will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert, in the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. And so they will provide this sort of relief, this sort of um, um, healing uh, for for the people. And now they would have understood that as a prophetic text and, and that there would be these people. And so the understanding here is like, look, Jesus is the Messiah, but, but Jesus' followers should be the fulfillment of this text. Now, what, what do we know about Peter's name itself? It's, it's, it's rock. rock. Yeah. And so when it says like the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land, I wonder if Luke is just brilliant here and connecting the dots to be like, look, like these miracles, the, 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 the healing of these people were happening through the disciples, just like Isaiah 32 talked about. And even like the shadow of the great rock in Peter was happening here. And so um, I think it's an interesting tie in for Luke to go, look, this was the prophecies coming true, even in the lives of the disciples. Yeah. And remember back to Acts 4 as well. People were coming to faith because the apostles were, te- the apostles were teaching about Jesus after these miracles and signs and wonders. So these sort of signs and wonders were really supporting the true work of gospel sharing yeah, and yeah. evangelism. They always accompany the gospel going forward. Yeah. So then they get arrested. Yep. Again. And they'll again. get arrested again, again. Um, and they get arrested, but they immediately go back to preaching and they, they get arrested again and stand before the council and they're like, look, like... We don't listen. We only listen to God. We don't listen to ordinary people like you, especially those that killed Jesus, like the Sadducees. Um, we we answer to God and God alone, and we've seen Him do amazing things, and He's continuing to do this with Jesus. So how can we stop talking? That's sort of ultimately their responses to the to the council. Yeah. So what do you think about the statement here, Peter's statement? We must obey God rather than men when he's speaking to the authorities and leadership. Yeah, I mean, I think he already just called them out to say, like, look, this is this is God doing a, a unique thing, and uh, I think I think he's picking up on something that Stephen will end up saying, because uh, Stephen will just be bold about it, being like, "Hey, uh, all the prophets came before, and you guys in leadership missed it every single time, and actually didn't welcome God's prophets and messengers." And I think I think Peter here is standing here going, "I think they're doing it again," and so there there is a role of respecting leadership and and these this is the preachy rule and they they should respect them in some ways but when it feels like the things that God has said and done trumps them saying hey you need to stop mm-hmm. then then that that circumvents the sort of law and the authority in this moment and and I think they're sort of going look like we know what we saw and we know what we've experienced we know what we've heard um and you guys don't. You guys weren't walking with Jesus. And so um, we, we can't help but to to preach it. Like that is the authority right. in our life, not not anybody else. Yeah, God's work and his word supersedes the authority of others. And the gospel continued to go forth because they continued to preach in the temple and house to house. Yeah, I'm glad they, they did stopped. Listen. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would have been bad news. Well, I mean, God would have figured something else out, I'm sure. Um, but they also had one another to co- corroborate and to like work alongside. So... 
I guess the caution here of we must obey God rather than men is that if you feel like you were obeying God in some way that not a single other person agrees with you or understands with you or can't validate it through scripture, uh, then you got to make sure you're really following God as well. True. Um, yeah. And the Sadducees are not the greatest bunch to begin with. So um, I'm sure it wasn't hard for them to be like, hey, we're not going to follow you guys. Uh, and uh, But the, there's some, at least amongst the councils, that are at least reasonable. Mm-hmm. Like a guy named Galileo who's like, hey, we've seen this all before. We've seen other groups rise up and then die down. So, hey, if this is really from God, great. It'll continue on. And if it's not, it'll die down like everything else before it. Mm-hmm. And so um, that seems pretty reasonable. But they still beat the disciples anyways. And uh, that's where they said this, we're counted worthy to suffer this dishonor uh, for for his name, uh, which yeah. is a pretty powerful statement. Um, I don't know how much I, I look at any sort of suffering I experience, particularly for the gospel, and go, ah, oh, I'm counted worthy for this. Right. Um, yeah, it's just hard. Now, it doesn't mean you're, they're counted worthy because they were jerks about things it's it's they preach the gospel it was clear um i think some people take this and be like hey like i i i was a total jerk on facebook but i did it in the name of jesus and now people hate me for it and it's like oh i'm counted worthy it's like no like mm-hmm. they're clear in the gospel they're not trying to be offensive they, they are just saying what jesus has said and it's getting them in trouble um and so um yeah yeah all right so then Seven people are chosen to serve because there's an issue in the church. Yep, we get another issue in the church, um, and uh, I, I think the 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 way the story's told, I think that it's very much a there's a racial problem in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, these these would have been culturally Greek Jewish people, the Hellenists. Um, yeah, so uh, they would have been heavily influenced by Greek culture. They would have dressed like Greek people. They would, they would have had all the sort of Greek trappings. But but in lineage wise, they would have been Jewish. And um, they're noting that their widows aren't being taken care of. That probably the more Jewish looking, Jewish uh, dressed, Jewish practice uh, widows were. And um, they said this is a problem. This is not okay. If we're going to be one in spirit, we're going to be unified. Like we are a people together. Uh, and the apostles. Um, sort of appointmental management in a way they, they see their role of the ministry of word and prayer and, and, and say, Hey, we, we, we're going to offer, we're, we're going to appoint some of you. And they actually appoint a bunch of people that generally have Greek names. Um, so it's like, Hey, mm-hmm. like we want to make sure that you're taken care of, but you know, your people well, like, why don't you uh, oversee this? And um, yeah. And sort of, this is um, pr- the, the proto diaconate as some people call it. This is like the first evidences of what a, a deacon board could could sort of be like the, the sort of appointed um, taskmen in the church or taskwomen in the church. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's noteworthy that kind of the first ministry that was started outside of evangelism was a sort of mercy ministry that was caring for people on the margins and the vulnerable. Yeah. We have seen over and over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's heart for the vulnerable and the marginalized. And so I guess it's not a surprise that they didn't you know, form a women's ministry or a men's ministry, but they formed a, a mercy ministry to make sure the vulnerable were being cared for. Yeah. And and I think it's it's prioritizing not not the people roles, but it's prioritizing like the overall emphasis of the church. Like the ministry of the word of prayer is is the general driving force, I think, of of the church. The mercy ministry serves underneath that. Um like the the word the, the connection to God himself, like that is the central part of who we are as a church. Mercy ministry comes to, to just come alongside that. Like, right. It's not that that's optional. Right. No, not at all. Um, but it is. But it would cease to be the church. Secondary to the gospel going forth and transforming lives through that. And so, 
um, it's sort of the, the how uh, on the back end of that. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. And we get this idea of seven again, and we're going to see that a few times in scripture of like 70 or seven and all the sort of leadership teams that, that often have that in it. So, yeah. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, as I kind of quoted a little bit in Acts 4 a second ago, um, it's an important passage. It definitely has some messianic overtones. I mean, it had some David connection to it. And um, yeah, I think, Psalm, and, and just so you know, Psalm 1 and 2 are definitely looked at as sort of the the preamble to mm-hmm. the rest of the book of Psalms, um, sort of setting up this this picture of, of what's coming. Yeah. So next week, what, do you, what should we look for, Sarah? So... Old Testament, I want you to think of the steadfast love of God, specifically that word steadfast. What does steadfast mean and how do we see it in what we read in Numbers this week? And in the New Testament, pay attention to the geography. Where is everything happening? What cities? What kind of religions are here? Uh, Where are the people from who are getting saved? And what does that change? How does that change as we read this next week? And what does that telling us about God's plan for the nations. Yeah, it's almost uh, important to go back and read Acts 1-8 as sort of the outline of the book mm-hmm. and then read through what uh, you're going to read through this week. Yeah. And then um, the Old Testament for me, uh, I-, I think sometimes as we read Israel struggles, it's really easy to be like, they're such idiots. Um, and uh, But I, at the same time, like, man, the amount of times God has done things in my life and then soon after, like, I forget the lesson learned, I forget, and, and I have to relearn it again. And, and so how often, I mean, sometimes it's less um, grandiose as some of the stuff that the people in, in Israel get to see, but it doesn't change that God has worked a lesson in my life and I still forget it uh, mm-hmm. soon after that. And, then and just because we don't say it out loud or it's not written down in a book doesn't mean we're any less guilty if oh, yeah. we think it in our mind than yeah. the Israelites are. Oh, yeah. And if someone were writing a book on my life that was going into scripture about ways that I forgot a lesson that I already learned, I mean, I might look like just as much of a buffoon. And then um, and then as you read the Ethiopian story in uh, the New Testament, um, he references Isaiah 53, but it also says that Philip starts reading from that point in Isaiah. And uh, I know it's more homework and more reading, but uh, if you can take a moment and read the beginning of Isaiah 56, like the first section, I think it's divided into two big sections, read that and think about the Ethiopian eunuch and how he would hear that whole section. I think it's beautiful. And we'll cover that mm-hmm. next week when we talk about it. But thanks, y'all. And Thank uh, we'll we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.